Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we cover this week in provincial and municipal politics with John Best from the Bay Observer. If Trump gets arrested, will his followers retaliate? It's a real concern south of the border. And real estate and many commodities have fallen in value in recent months. Does that mean that the worst of the inflation is over? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, roll back a little bit. Uh, to Queen's Park. Uh, this was a busy week down there, of course. It's unusual to have a summer session, but that's what started, of course, with the uh, speech from the throne and the uh, the budget being reintroduced. But uh, they weren't talking that much about economics. They were talking about health care. As the uh, health care system and this government now deals with staff shortages, increased wait times, and temporary ER closures, experts are offering up solutions to try to fill the void left by the Conservative government's throne speech this week. Karen Rebo has some details. There is no shortage of suggestions from experts and advocates as to what could help the system get through staff retirements, vacations, illness and burnout. Nurses unions are calling for training and registering more health care workers, including from other countries. They also want better working conditions and they want the government to scrap the law that caps wage hikes for public sector contracts at 1% a year. The Ontario Medical Association is calling for the province to build publicly funded standalone health centers that can perform less complex outpatient surgeries. The doctors group says 22 million patient services were delayed during the pandemic, 10 million of which were surgeries and cancer screening procedures. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press, Toronto. So let's uh, look at what's going on with there and a number of other issues with Queen's Park too. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, John Best, who is the publisher of of the Bay Observer. John, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're uh, doing well these days. Doing well, Bill. Nice to be with you again. Busy week. Like I say, we don't usually have a session at Queen's Park during the summer months, but here we are in the middle of it right now. Uh, I found it interesting that uh, we've just laid all of these stats out about what's going on with healthcare and closures in some ERs, especially in some small towns. Yet the Minister of Health and the Premier are both saying, this is not a crisis, guys. No, don't overplay this at all. Is the public buying that, John? I doubt it. Um, I, I don't think anybody uh, would say that we're not in a crisis mode. And uh, even even today, you pick up the spectator and they're talking about five uh, people leaving uh, Hamilton Health Sciences. These are people that operate the heart-lung machines when somebody's getting open-heart surgery. Five of them left uh, for Toronto because uh, they're getting more money down there. So, I mean, to, to suggest that there's no crisis, I think, is, uh, uh, you know, whistling past the cemetery. So uh, I don't think anybody's going to buy that. I, I think the issue, though, is you, you get rhetoric as well uh, that I don't think is overly helpful. Um, the minister yesterday kind of got tangled up when she talked about, I don't even know if she talked about it, but somebody was reading the tea leaves in their comments and suggesting that she was talking about privatizing health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just seems to be a red flag that uh, that really gets people upset. And, and yet, you know, if you look at uh, our current health care system, it's uh, it's about 30 percent privatized as it is. And I did a little scan of uh, some of the other Western countries and, uh, you know, in Europe, uh, several of the countries, including France and Germany, have these hybrid systems uh, where there's uh, publicly 100 percent publicly paid for services. And then there's supplementary insurance uh, systems. So I, I think if we, you know, I saw Mr. Tabbins yesterday saying it's the thin edge of the wedge. I think the discussion has to take place, uh, at least to explore what it really means, and I don't think anybody really knows. And that's the interesting element about this. I mean, you know, if you want to get into political characterizations, uh, what Peter Tabin said yesterday was exactly what you'd expect an NDP leader to say. You know, we're against that. You know, we don't want privatization at all. Uh, and you would expect a conservative government to say, yeah, we need to do that because there could be some economies of scale. So, you know, those are the two polar ends of the of the debate here. Uh, so nothing new there. But the, I guess the concern here is, uh, you know, as you say, what's this going to look like if, in fact, they're going to do it? And, and I'm always skeptical, I guess, John, when when a politician says everything's on the table, that kind of tells me sometimes that maybe they've already got a plan in the bottom of the drawer there and they're just waiting to pull it out. Well, one of the biggest problems that the hospital system faces is the number of patients they have in the hospital that really don't belong there. 
Uh, mm -hmm. they, they're stabilized or they're at a point where they no longer need intensive uh, care, but there's simply no place to put them. So, uh, you know, it's, that's not a magic wand solution, but it, we, we certainly are well aware of the problem. Um, I, I can recall uh, many years ago, I was, I was in hospital for a couple of days and I was in a room with another patient and uh, he had been in there so long that uh, he had a dresser brought in from his home. So like he was in there for the long haul. Wow. And, and uh, you know, it was just the people just sort of walked around. And I mean, this is somebody that clearly needed to be in a, in a nursing home or a retirement home or something. Uh, clearly did not need, you know, was not needing to be in what would be an intensive care or a a high needs hospital bed and there he was and that's in one of our hospitals in in hamilton so th there definitely is a, a problem with uh finding sort of that intermediate space for for people that need care but don't need to be in a hospital and i think that's going to be uh one of the big discussions uh, down the road yeah, no no new ideas here i mean we all we know the formula here you're absolutely right they need to invest in in home care they need to invest in in long-term care facilities uh, a number of situations like that and they, it just that doesn't seem to be happening so uh, they're looking to go down this other road here with the privatization it's going to be fascinating to see uh, just what they try to roll out and uh, and how they're going to uh, get implement this whole thing and first i uh, more importantly i guess is you know how we're going to react to it as a public uh, another well, element that happened, and this this seemed John like a you know this a whole hum thing. They have to elect a new speaker for the legislature, and and that's it's something that has to happen. You have to have a referee there, and when you have a majority government, it's usually a government member. Ted Arnott was the the guy last uh, session. Uh, he ran for re-election. Doug Ford didn't want him, uh, and he uh, he he had his own candidate. Uh, she lost. Arnott is back in there. And hell hath no fury like a premier that has been uh, ticked off. Uh, he's taken privileges away from, I guess, just about everybody in his caucus right now because he didn't get his way. Well, uh, it's probably about the only opportunity that ordinary members have to uh, express some independence from from the whips. And uh, the, the maddening thing for Ford is that he can't. He can pretty much guess. Who um, who were the you know and I I did the math and assuming that everybody was present at that opening session there were at least twenty one members of his caucus that had to vote against his wishes in order to uh, retain Mr Arnott in the speaker's chair so you know you can kind of figure out who they are uh, who who's been kicked who's been excluded from cabinet who hasn't got a hope in hell of getting into cabinet. Uh, who you know? Is there anybody that didn't get a parliamentary assistant job? Uh, so you, you got a rough idea who they are, but you can't prove it. Um, and uh, you know, and and I mean, the, it doesn't mean that it's a palace revolt, but what it does mean is that there's a certain amount of discontent in the ranks. And when you're, I don't care if it's a, a parliamentary caucus or a newsroom or a factory floor. If you've got, you know, I think he's got uh, almost uh, 80 odd members, uh, there's always going to be a faction in any workplace where people are not happy. And, and uh, this is the one opportunity that many of them have for their entire term of office. This will be the one opportunity they had to sort of express themselves, so to speak. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure he's angry. I, I yeah, saw well, him after, after the after the vote was taken place. He was participating in the um, standing ovation that Mr. Arnott got, but it was sort of in, in his case more like golf applause than anything else. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, they went into their caucus meeting, and uh, he has canceled international travel for the caucus. Requests to be absent from the legislature have been denied automatically, and phones have been locked away. So uh, they've been bad kids, and and he's he's you know taken away their privileges. Yeah, that's uh, that's unfortunate. That's uh, that is almost the kind of petulance you'd expect from a Trump. Uh, I've always resisted these comparisons of Ford with Trump because I don't think there is much to compare the two. Um, but uh, when you do you know sort of peevish things like that, it's uh, it's not helpful and. Uh, 
you know, he's in his second term now, so I think he's less concerned about how happy people are. And, and that'll, that'll uh, not only be within his caucus, but also, um, to a certain degree, uh, the public as well. I think, you know, the, the thought is this is his second term and there's going to be a lot of uh, sort of sweeping actions taken. We're already hearing about some of them, certainly in, in this whole housing piece. He's with the um, strong mayor system. and Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. I'm glad you brought that up. I, could, I checked that off on my list here. Yeah. Uh, it's a piece of legislation that was introduced, uh, and and this, this is not a new idea. It's been talked about for years. Dalton McGinney kind of wanted to do that, but uh, David Miller, who was the mayor of Toronto at the time, said, "No, we're good here. We don't need that." Uh, and and basically, as as we've talked about at least uh, you know conceptually in the past, it, it gives the mayor of the city extra powers. They can appoint the chief officers, they can appoint the committee chairs, uh, and fire them too if they want in situations like that. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised. I, like I mentioned yesterday in my comments here, I mean, I was on council for nine years and I can see that there's some, some benefit to something like this because of the inertia on a lot of these councils and the vote trading that goes on. Uh, but I'm, I'm surprised that this is mixed reaction. A lot of people just don't seem to like the idea. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I'm, I'm kind of with you. Uh, I mean, I, I think what it does mean uh, is that when we're selecting a mayor, uh, we've got to really now put on our thinking caps and, and look very closely at, at uh, who we're electing, because it will be hard to muster a two-thirds if, if that ends up being the number. I, I'd feel more comfortable with something like 60%, but I, I'm not sure it makes that much difference, but it's still... Uh, it would take a pretty serious revolt on the on the part of a council to to overturn uh, the mayor's wishes. I I do like the idea, frankly, of, of the mayor having uh, more say in terms of senior staff because I I think what we're looking at here with the Red Hill inquiry at the end of the day, what we're seeing there is um, a lot of disconnect between uh, council and senior staff that I. I think would be less likely to happen if uh, it was understood that the mayor could uh, hire and fire department heads, and hopefully that wouldn't uh, become a you know a, somebody abusing that process. But I I kind of like the idea of, of a mayor then being able to shape his or her own administration uh, more than right now they it's one vote on council. Well, you know, it's like a prime minister gets to choose a staff and the president of the United States gets to choose the, their staff and on and on it goes. So I, I see some merit, but with that, of course, comes more responsibility. That means, you know, if, if this whole thing tanks, uh, it's on the mayor. I mean, because, you know, they hired that, these individuals. You, you can say right now, yeah, well, that finance guy, I inherited uh, him or her, you know, when I, when I got the office. So I'm going to have to do what I can. I, I mentioned, though, by the way, it's going to be a test case in Toronto and Ottawa first. Uh, I'm assuming John Tory is going to get reelected, and and I can see Tory in, fitting into that in that structure. I don't know who's going to be the mayor of Ottawa because Jim Watson's not running again. But I'm I'm kind of glad that Hamilton is not on that list right now because I don't think we're ready for something like this. I think we've got some growing up to do uh, with with councillors and attitudes before we, we can adopt with a, a system like this. Yeah, and and there certainly was a strong hint in the throne speech that that the thought is that that this will. Uh, extend to the uh, yeah. uh, will extend to the other large cities in the province. The question, I guess, is will it happen in this current council term that's coming up, or will, would it be something that would be implemented in the next uh, council term? But uh, either way, uh, if if there's uh, any chance that it's going to happen in this council term, I I think it just makes it more uh, behooves uh, voters to take a look at people and say, you know, who, who could fit that role uh, now? Uh, should it come along, say, in the next year or two? Yeah, and that's that's the concern I think an awful lot of people would have if, if it were to be implemented here. Uh, there's with it, as I say, it's that responsibility. And, you know, this now you're not just asking the mayor to be the chief magistrate of the city and, and the head of council. Uh, you're asking them to actually set the, the the course for what's going on. And I know just about everybody that wants to mayor thinks they can do that, uh, but under the current system right now, for instance, in Hamilton and London, the mayor's one vote. I mean, they can they can have a lot of influence, but when you know the hands go up, yay or nay, uh, there's not a whole lot the mayor can do about that. A strong mayor can actually 
move an agenda forward if they have that kind of talent anyway. And that's the whole thing. You've got to find somebody that has that skill set. Well, and, and I, you know, I think being able to, it, it's one thing to come in with your, with your mayor staff, you know, the staff of the mayor's office, which, which they all get to do, but uh, being able to come in and actually shape the senior bureaucracy, I, I'm sure it's, it's scaring the hell out of any city employee that's listening to this right now, but um <laughs> You know, you look at New York, uh, I think we talked about this uh, in New York, the mayor even appoints the chief of police and, and also is in charge of education. So imagine having all that on your plate and, and being able to move those key people in and out uh, as as mayor. Now, New York is like a country, so, you know, population-wise, and I don't think we can make any real comparisons here, but... Uh, there, there certainly are systems where this is the way it works. And Buffalo uh, would have the same kind of uh, system uh, with mm -hmm. a strong mayor, and that's a city more in line with uh, Hamilton's size. So it's happening elsewhere. Um, I don't think we have enough evidence to know whether it's whether it's working well everywhere or not. But uh, it's uh, it's an interesting concept, and and I think. Ford comes at it from the, the unique position of having sat on a council, seen the inertia, the grandstanding, the virtue signaling, um, ad nauseum. And uh, so he did two things. He got rid of half of them, uh, although I don't think he changed the overall political complexion of the council Not very really. much. But he, uh, it's clear he likes tinkering with municipal government. So sure there does. we go. Yep. Yeah. John, uh, we're out of time. Uh, as always, thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again next week. I'm sure there's a lot more about the stuff we just talked about here, too. Take care. Yes. Yep. Thanks, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've all been watching what's been going on south of the border over the last little while with uh, the raid at Mar-a-Lago and, uh, and the uh, boxes that were taken out of there and Donald Trump whining about it as per usual. Uh, we don't know where this is going to go, where the charges are going to be laid. Uh, but there are some concerns about security. And uh, maybe the example of, uh, of what happened uh, just the other day in Ohio, uh, sadly, is, is an indication that we need to be on guard for that. And that, of course, is the story of an armed man that was shot dead after trying to breach an FBI office in Ohio. I want to bring Phil Gursky into the conversation. Uh, Phil, if Parse is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, he, he is also the director of the University of Ottawa Security Program and a former CSIS analyst and, of course, author of a number of books on uh, security as well. Phil, great to have you back. Hope you're doing well these days. I am, Bill. How are you today, sir? Top of the world. Uh, feeling great. Fabulous day today. Uh, very troubled by what I'm watching south of the border, uh, notwithstanding mm -hmm. whatever your political affiliations or whatever may be. Uh, it's dangerous what's happening here, but I think it's more dangerous, and I've seen this from a couple of different sources right now, Phil. Uh, if Donald Trump is, is arrested, and that's a very distinct possibility, or charges laid on him anyway, uh, there's a concern that some of those followers, including some of the people that were there on January 6th at the Capitol a year and a half or so ago, uh, could be, well, they already are weaponized. And, and there's an, as a matter of fact, there seems to be a strong indication that, uh, that this guy that was shot and killed by the FBI agents uh, in Ohio, in Cincinnati the other day, uh, was one of those guys. Uh, is there a concern right now? That I, they're talking about revolution. I, maybe that's too strong mm -hmm. a word. Uh, but there could be a lot of stuff going on, like what we saw in Cincinnati. You're absolutely right, Bill. And I, for one, I, I'm not, you know me, I, I'm not a panicker. I don't like to go to the nth degree on things, mm -hmm. but I'm seeing more and more from what I would consider to be credible sources in the United States talking about the possibility of a civil war. Now, that that goes way down the, the turnpike for me, but you are correct. There are people that still think that Trump, uh, you know, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. All the, the FBI raid in, in his home in Florida was some kind of a conspiracy and and the, and the guy in Cincinnati and and to be fair, Bill, I mean the, the FBI hasn't determined the motive just yet, but there are some tweets, some social media posts in which this guy does seem to suggest that he believes the FBI is an evil force that they're trying to get at their at the true president. He talks about the stolen election in 2020, so there may in fact be a link between his thoughts and what happened in that in the raid in in Ohio, as you mentioned, uh, against the FBI office, but. There is there are concerns for the reasons you cited. I mean, you know, guns are a dime a dozen in the states. We have a a really polarized society. We saw that in the Roe versus Wade overturn in many states. 
it's not looking good. And uh, I, I really do, arc, I'm very, very much concerned for my American friends as to where this whole thing is headed. Well, and, and even in reaction to what happened in Cincinnati, of course, FBI Director Christopher Wray, who, by the way, was a Trump appointment, of course, to head the FBI. Uh, so, so much for this Democratic conspiracy. But anyway, uh, he expressed some concern, and I think legitimately so, Phil, about FBI agents right across the country. In other words, I don't know that they're going to march on Washington, these people that are going to get upset about this, with the, you know, such as this guy did. Uh, but they, they're taking it out on the FBI. They're the ones that did the raid. They're the ones that may be laying charges in situations like that. So uh, according to, as you saw, some of these tweets this guy had, uh, the FBI are the enemy now. Yeah, I think they do have targets on their back. And, you know, for this crowd, Bill, they're not really subtle and they don't make distinctions. So if you're an FBI agent, let's say, in, I don't know, Nevada or in North Carolina, or if you're even a local law enforcement officer and you're identified as such with a, you know, a police uniform, you could, in fact, be targeted by these people who have this conspiracy theory that, Somehow the law enforcement at several levels, and the United States has many levels like Canada, you know, national and state and local level law enforcement, are somehow part of this Biden Democratic plan to take over the world and, and, and you know, and, and deny the, the true election victory of Trump in 2020. Or by the raid in his home in Florida, by, by precluding the possibility of a rerun for president in 2024. And I do think that if you are amongst that community in law enforcement, you, you're really looking over your shoulder these days because in a country with more guns than people, Bill, uh, it is highly possible that you're going about doing your, your duty, your daily work, and somebody takes a pot shot at you. Phil, how organized or how organized could they be in situations like that? I mean, you've talked about this with in the past. Uh, there are private militia groups all over the states. I know that some of them in Michigan, just across the border. Uh, in, in upstate Michigan, uh, in New York, and places like this. And they train on a regular basis. I mean, that's what mm -hmm. they do, and they're, they're ready to, to move when they have to move. Uh, we've seen incidences of that. I mean, there was the group in Michigan, as a matter of fact, remember about two years ago, that tried to kidnap the governor. The governor, and yeah. they had a plan. Yeah. They had a plan, and they were pretty close to uh, trying to execute that plan when, when the FBI finally moved in. So they are there. But I, it, as I say, they seem to be pockets, isolated pockets right now. But that's yeah. an element there right now. Is there concern that, that they could be weaponized? I mean, you know, because a lot of them have that same sort of allegiance and loyalty uh, and an obsession, as some people might even say, about Donald Trump uh, mm -hmm. and would feel that this is the way that they have to, to free their leader. There's no question they're weaponized, Bill. We've seen the the photographs, we've seen the videos, we've seen the news stories. And again, in a country where, you know, you basically buy an AK-47 with your evening newspaper, it's not hard to become weaponized. I, you know, I'm not a far-right specialist. I'm more of a jihadi specialist. But sure. from, what I, from what I know, I, it really is a dog's breakfast. You do have the very organized militias that do the training. And by the way, we have militias here in Canada that, that do analogous training, maybe sure. not as weaponized oh, yeah. as our American colleagues. Everywhere to the lone guys. And, and this guy in Cincinnati, again, a lot of information hasn't been forthcoming yet. But it seems from what I've read so far in American media that he was a one-off. He was an angry person, probably tied into certain websites online, 4chan, 8chan, in which these people share these theories, conspiracy theories and things like that, and decided to act on his own. He, he, he put out a tweet calling for a revolution and then basically got in his car and tried to uh, break through uh, an FBI office in Cincinnati. I, I think the, the challenge for the FBI and, and for law enforcement and by extension for CSIS and the RCP in, in, in Canada, Bill, is it really is that gamut of the extremely well-organized hierarchical organizations in the states, militias, we've seen terrorist groups here in Canada, all the way down to the one-offs, the guy sitting in front of his computer who decides he wants to, to act. You can't monitor them all. You can't investigate them all. And at the end of the day, an incident that happened in Cincinnati could have turned out much, much more serious had he actually breached the perimeter. As it turned out, he didn't, and he and no officers were, were, were harmed, thank God. But it, it could have very much have been a guy with a, with a vendetta, with a grudge, who decides to make a statement on his own, and there's a good chance he wouldn't be on anybody's radar. And and that's the concern, I think, about just how far this will go and who is and how organized they can be in situations like that. But I guess one of the disconcerting things uh, that I wanted to get your read on, Phil, is is... As you say, uh, it's not just a lack of respect for law enforcement officers anymore. It's that they're looking at law enforcement officers, a number of these elements, as the enemy, as the bad guys. I, I saw the other night on TV, it was two Republican congressmen actually debating each other on this. And one of them rather chided, I guess, the guy who was a little more to the right than he was and said, whatever happened to you guys, we're supposed to be the, the party of law and order. 
you know, why don't you back the blue? In other words, you know, police officers, and instead of attacking them like they did on the Capitol, instead of attacking them like they did with the FBI building, uh, and that's that's not a un- uniquely an American problem. We see that lack of respect uh, for for uh, officers of the law on this side of the border too. Yeah, and it and it goes even further, Bill. You, you're familiar with the defund the police movement in the wake of the George Floyd sure. shooting, of course. Uh, there seems to be a notion on on many parts of the political spectrum that law enforcement uh, it doesn't do a good job or is overzealous or you know there's accusations that that far right extremist groups are recruiting from within law enforcement because they think they share the same mentality and the same ideology kind of thing. But yeah, it's a valid question as to why uh, an, an organization or rather a, a set of organizations, a part of our our, our nation that's been around for, since we started is now seen upon in, in such a bad light. And look, I was never a cop, Bill. I mean, I worked a lot with the RCMP. I was with the OPP for a while as an advisor when I retired from CSIS on, on terrorism. I have a great amount of respect for law enforcement. And are there bad apples? Absolutely. Like I said, they're bad apples in intelligence and probably in radio journalism as well. Oh, yeah. But you know, the vast majority of people are there doing a good, good job. But as I say to people, you know, you may not like cops, but... At 2 o'clock in the morning, when a phone call comes in that there's a domestic assault going on or something, you don't have to get out of bed, but the, but the police officers do. And they have to handle the worst situations in Canadian-American society. And you can sleep soundly because you don't have to you know, worry about that kind of thing. So I am worried about this, this, I would call it a decrease in respect for law enforcement. And in the worst case scenario, as you said, the two Republicans debating, we have actually have politicians who should know better, Bill, painting law enforcement as the enemy to be eliminated as, as part of this grand conspiracy to keep you know things going a certain way one world government you hear those types of terms we see you know people calling uh you know the trudeau government fascist here in canada and then therefore by extension anybody that that works for trudeau government is, is a fascist is a very very worrisome phenomenon and i and i hope we can figure out a way to to get to, to scale back from that because it could end very badly in many situations well, and we've seen that, you know, well, we saw it certainly, of course, in, in Parliament Hill, of course, in February with the uh, the protests that went on there. Uh, and there's another element that is actually going up in your neck of the woods, too, though, Phil, and you, you've heard about this one, of course. Uh, this group that's creating what they call their own private security force to guard uh, yeah. this former church that uh, that they seem to be uh, taking over. They're called the United People of Canada. The, uh, and, and, and I'm not suggesting this is a right-wing group. I don't know anything about their politics or anything like that, but basically... Uh, the mantra here seems to be the cops don't do a very good job. We'll do this ourselves. And it, it, in some people's minds, it kind of smacks a little bit of vigilante activity. And, and I'm not so sure we should be comfortable with that sort of thing. I 100% agree. And in all honesty, Bill, I couldn't pick up the United People of Canada out of a one-person lineup, just as you couldn't. Did a bit of background looking, and this seems to be sort of, uh, you know, sympathetic to the Freedom Convoy movement of January and February, you alluded to in 2000, in, 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 earlier on this winter. But yeah, for a group to say that we're going to create an independent, uh, you know, private security force, they're calling it, and they're talking about maybe recruiting some law enforcement members and things like that. Uh, first of all, you can't do that in Canada. That's against the law. Uh, secondly, why do they see the need to do this? I mean, they claim they've been threatened. They claim there's been uh, assassination attempt, death threats they've received, vandalism and thefts at their so-called, they're calling it an embassy, by the way, this old church in downtown, they're calling it an embassy. Are we, have we really reached the point where a group needs to do this? I, I, I have strong beliefs that the answer is no. It seems to be more of an attention grab than anything else. But again, I, I, I think it points to the, the decline in civil discourse in Canada, that we have groups and individuals talking about these types of things. It, it, it's the, is it to get attention? Is it to you know get people to, to believe in what they're talking about? But when you have that kind of, I, I'd say, descent to the bottom, if I could use that term, when it comes to our ability to, to talk about our differences, and let's you know, let's face it, we all have differences, pol- political differences, et cetera, et cetera. If we can't be typically Canadian polite to each other, we, and we get to this point, that is a very, very worrisome development. Well, and I understand there are security companies that, that do this sort of thing. I get, I mean, that's their, their raison d'etre. I get that, uh, but for the most part, they're not armed. It's it's. <laughs> You know, you, you can have that if you, you know, we've seen that happen in, in situations sometimes, you know, well, I see, I see security guards at the LCBO sometimes, too, because yeah. they're worried about theft. But, you know, they're not standing there with an AK-47 saying, you know, let me see what you got in the bag. Uh, and for these people, first of all, they, you know, to suggest that, look, this is what we need to do. We don't trust the police. I mean, that's, as you say, a carryover from what happened in February, the disrespect for, for mm-hmm. police officers. Uh, but... <laughs> 
even if that does happen, I, as you mentioned, this is this is a country where you're not supposed to take the law into your own hands and simply say, I will do my own security and I will enforce my own rules. I'd be very surprised if we see a situation, Bill, where there is some serious armament being used here. I mean, I, I'm pretty confident Ottawa police and maybe with their RCMP partners would crack down pretty darn quick if it turned out these people were trying to arm themselves with some serious weaponry. You know, they may, in fact, hire a bunch of toughs to stand outside their so-called embassy headquarters and, you know, as a, as a show of force that, you know, don't mess with us and don't, you know, don't paint slogans on our on our building and don't, you know, chuck garbage at us kind of thing. But so I, 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 I'm, I'm more of a realist. I, I don't want to go down that road where this is inevitably going to end in something really bad with guys, you know, with AK-47 standing outside this building. I don't think it'll get to that point. But again, it to me, it's just, it's more of a symptom of, of a phenomenon we've been seeing over the last couple of years where it's not just disrespect for police, it's distrust of government, which is neither here nor there. I mean, you know, Bill, like I said, we all have political differences, but sure. it's the tone of the conversation. It's the tone of the debate, which I think is becoming worrisome. And But I do want to caution listeners, you know, as I've said to you a million times, the vast majority of people who say stupid things online never do anything about it. So let's not draw a one-one relationship between a you know, a post calling for this and an actual real world occurrence of that as happened in Cincinnati. It's being looked at, but it's in the RCMP. I know that for a fact. If there are problematic elements that are going to go that nth degree and, and advocate or actually plan the use of violence, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll get a hold of them. So let's not you know, go to the nth degree on this. But yeah, the, the whole disrespect for law enforcement, I, I mean, I don't get that. I've, I've, I've worked with thousands of police all over my career, Bill. And again, I have the utmost respect for them with what they do. And I just wish that we could get to a more civil level of dialogue on this on these particular issues amen to that uh, phil thanks as always for this really appreciate it have a great weekend you too bill we'll talk we'll talk soon you betcha phil gersky president of borealis threat and risk consulting you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml a lot of talk about the economy of course uh, over the last little while the good the bad and the ugly of it and there's been a lot of ugly uh, because of inflation and uh, I, I don't know, based on some of the, the work and, and some of the uh, interviews we've done in the past, if, if I can't, I think, categorically say that we didn't see this coming. We knew there was going to be some economic pushback. I know there's some people just thought, well, as we uh, move out of the pandemic, uh, you know, we're going to come out from under you know, our basements and go spend lots of money and the economy is going to be just fine. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, supply chain shortages, of course, was a major factor in that. Uh, the war in Ukraine and uh, certainly a factor in what's going on with the, for instance, oil prices and gasoline prices. Uh, but then inflation reared its ugly head and uh, and and grew and grew and grew. And the last numbers we saw, of course, it's eight uh, percent, maybe even a little above that now. And it's had an impact on each and every one of us. I mean, you know, we go to the grocery store, you're paying more for bananas, you're paying more for everything uh, at the grocery store. You're paying well. The gasoline prices are starting to fluctuate. I mean, they went down considerably a few about a week or so ago. Uh, but we're told that they may start creeping back up again. But this is the the, the ugly thing about inflation. And, and, of course, the Bank of Canada had to respond, uh, as they do, because they say this is how you beat inflation. You have to raise interest rates. And they've done that. Uh, and they've done it on a pretty consistent basis over the last couple of months. We all know the impact that's had on what's happening with the economy. It's it's. And they told us they're doing it, and they told us, you know, it's going to be painful for some people, but they said we have to stop spending money. And the best way to do that is to raise interest rates so you make it, let's say, shall we say, less palatable to go out and buy big things and, and spend a lot of our money. And I guess maybe we're starting to do that. Uh, and that's that's well and good. That's, that's the you know, the economic cycle, whether you like it or not. It's something that's going to have an impact on each and every one of our lives. And, uh, you know, the powers that be will make the decisions about interest rates and things of that nature. And we just pretty much have to just play along and uh, you know whatever they do we have to respond to it and then, and that it can be problematic it can be very frustrating sometimes because wages aren't keeping up with inflation and and that means you fall even further behind and i'm i'm singing to the choir here i know because an awful lot of people say we know that already yeah, we're looking at that look at the bills i've got here and here's my paycheck uh, and you don't want to be in a situation like that uh, so how's this going to resolve itself? Well, the easy answer to that is, well, we've got to tame inflation. They they mentioned about 8%. They'd like to see it down around 2%, maybe a little over 2%, uh, which I guess is a comfort zone for them. Uh, we've got a long way to go for that to happen. But that is the ultimate goal, and that's what these guys, the economists, all around the world, this is not just a Canadian problem, of course. It's happening in every other country, uh, and they're handling it uh, in varying degrees, but basically with the same process. 
And uh, that's why we're watching with great interest these numbers. And when we hear about the inflation numbers that come out and the Bank of Canada reaction to those inflation numbers, uh, we're also looking to see, okay, maybe, maybe the markets can correct themselves too. Because we do know that no matter what we do or no matter what economists do or no matter what politicians do, uh, there is an economic cycle that happens. Uh, you know, recessions do happen every now and then, uh, despite the best interest of everybody involved. They, they can be a dip, uh, and you know, you're going to run into a recession. And we've had a few of those, uh, some big, some very problematic, others not so much, but they're there. And we're not sure what's going to be on the horizon with this now with inflation. Uh, you've heard the predictions, uh, and it's, it's not a pretty picture. Some are suggesting that because of these high inflation rates and because of high interest rates, that we could well be into a, another recession. Probably they say November, December, something like that. Wouldn't that be sweet just during Christmas time? We hope we don't do that. We want to avoid that. Uh, so we're looking for green shoots, I think is one of the economic expressions. In other words, some signs that maybe things are getting better. And uh, that may be happening now uh, with some of the prices. Now, I know we're going to have a discussion about this, and we're going to talk about some of these uh, commodities, for instance, and some of the other things that were skyrocketing in price and seem to have altered and seem to have managed to, to decrease in value a little bit anyway. Uh, and, and I know you're going to say, well, I was just at the store the other day and I didn't see any of that. It, it always takes a while for these things to filter down. So to get some context in the story that we were talking about here, uh, and it's, it's a story that uh, a lot of people jumped out. I was on the CBC website. Uh, says real estate and many commodities have fallen in value in recent months. And, uh, and some people are saying, maybe that means we bottomed out. Maybe inflation is, is being tamed. Maybe we're heading for better days, maybe sooner than we had thought. That may be a little too optimistic. Let's ask our, our next guest. Ian Lee, associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, uh, joins us to talk about this. Good morning, Ian. Thanks for being with us on the show today. Uh, good morning, Bill. Uh, my pleasure. We're looking for good news here uh, after yeah. what we've had to go put through the last five or six weeks. And when we see things like uh, like lumber, well, even real estate, as we've talked about, starting to decrease, uh, that's that's what the, the Bank of Gov Canada governor told us. That's what the politicians told us. When prices start going down, that means we're starting to tame inflation. Are we? Uh, I think I'll put it slightly differently, but I'm on a similar page to what you're saying. I think uh, inflation has peaked. I did not say it's collapsing down to 2%. Um, I, I do not believe it's going to go from 6.8 to 8.5 to 10.5 to 12.5. That's what I mean by it's peaked. I think we, uh, the last two, three months, the prices themselves uh, caused demand destruction, and that's just a fancy word for saying people stopped buying certain products because they said, I'm just not paying a $2.15 a liter. That's demand destruction. Some of it was caused by the interest rates uh, going up, and which was terrifying, scaring some people. And some was caused by the speeches of the governor of the Bank of Canada and, and forecasters warning people. So we, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. I am not, I repeat, not saying, oh, well, you know, three months now it's going to be back down to 2%. Everything's going to be hunky-dory back to normal. It's going to take, I think, a couple of years to get back to, quote, normal, if we define normal as somewhere in the range of 2% inflation annually. But the good news is, I do believe it's peaked. I don't think we're going to see uh, food prices go uh, jumping dramatically going forward. And I do think the gasoline prices are down. And very quickly, because I know so many of your listeners want to know about this, they're, they're really curious, um, uh, there's been two drivers, and I use as my source, the energy economists at the U.S. Department of Energy in Washington, and they produce massive, awesome data. And there were two separate drivers that were correlated. One was the price of oil itself went up. We all knew that because of mm -hmm. Ukraine and Putin's illegal invasion and so forth. So the price went above $100 WTI, West Texas Intermediate. That oil is now down. It's down to about 91 so it's coming down, partly because of demand destruction. People stopped buying gas and oil, and uh, partly because the markets are now seeing that there's, uh, there is a return in, to, call it, more normal conditions on the horizon. The second correlated issue that I talked about with you and some others was the so-called crack spread. And no, we're not talking about drugs. The crack spread or the cracking spread is the, uh, the, the, the total uh, cost of converting raw oil in a barrel 
into finished refined petroleum goods called diesel, gasoline, jet aviation fuel, naphtha gas, etc. And the cracking spread was at historically unprecedented levels. The margins were much higher than normal. And some people said, oh, there's conspiracies and there's gouging. Not at all. There was just simply shortages of refinery because they had closed some of the older refineries because the environmental laws are getting stricter and stricter. And so now supply is coming back on stream. A refined petroleum product refineries are coming on. New refinery is coming on stream. And there's more oil coming on, fracking in the American Midwest and so forth. So gasoline products, oil and gas products, was a big part of the uh, inflation story. And, and then the other part is the interest rate. So I do think that we're going to see a gradual decline of inflation over the next uh, year to two years. It's going to take a year to two years to come back into line. And the good news, uh, c- there is good news to this story. And I've been arguing this since the beginning. I said that inflation first occurred and it looked like interest rates were going to go up. I said this is going to bring down average house prices, which are is wildly overvalued and they've been wildly overvalued because interest rates were so low because the monetary policy the central bank drove them way too low i argue and because our municipalities and our big cities across canada were deliberately suppressing and restricting the construction of new housing even though we needed it for the young people and immigrants and so those two factor the 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 interest rates are bringing down the in, the average prices and and this is good news for anyone who has a son or a daughter or a family member who wants to buy a house or uh, knows of an immigrant family that want to buy a house because this will make house prices much more affordable than before which is uh, uh, one of the ultimate goals here and i know people a year ago wouldn't have believed that was going to happen because it seemed to be going in the other direction how much of this though ian as, as this goes on and i think you know one of the takeaways our listeners have to get here is, is what you just said is timelines this is not going to happen by the end of the summer no, uh, you no. know it, it's gonna, we, it took us a long time to get into this mess it's going to take us a long time to get out but yeah. how much of this is just a market correction in other words you've talked to us about this in the past Economies are cyclical no matter what. I mean, yes. I, I know that if, if inflation numbers start to go down, and, and we're going to get an update on that next week, we're told, uh, from our friends in Ottawa, mm-hmm. uh, you know there's going to be a handful of politicians that are going to go, okay, see, see, I did this for you. You know, thank me later. Uh, or does this just happen on its own because of the way the economy is and because we uh, as consumers, the way we Bill, behave? Uh, you're, there's no question. There's no question. Nobel prizes have been awarded on the cyclicality and and the history of the economic cycle, as it's called. You know, where you have a strong boom period followed by a recession. I mean, literally, Nobel prizes. Have been, I mean, John Maynard Keynes turned his reputation into the yep. most famous economist in the world based on this uh, application and, and, and analysis of why do infl- uh, in, why do recessions occur. But I want to make a distinction between this period we're going through and the period in the 70s that I lived through as a very young person, as a bank um, loan mortgage manager and loan manager. In both instances, the normal cyclical nature, which is always there, as you just said, absolutely correct, was made worse. It was exacerbated by what? By government policy. Uh, Mr. Mm-hmm. Trudeau, Pierre Elliott, in the 70s, was running up very, very serious deficits when the economy was going out full tilt. And he, was, he wasn't causing the inflation, but he was making it worse. And the bank, the central bank, kept the interest rates too low for the economy, which was burning red hot. We did the same thing again. Again, I'm not accusing Mr. Trudeau, the current Mr. Trudeau, of causing inflation, nor the governor of the Bank of Canada. But they made it worse. They made it much worse. They should have put on the brakes. First off, I argued they put in too much stimulus into the system. Um, you know, this nonsense that the economy was going to collapse and we were all going to go back, I don't know, to the Stone Age or something. It's just, it was just nonsense. You know, if you look at historically recessions in Canada, so we're not talking theory, you know, the unemployment rate in a recession will jump to 8, 10, 12%. Well, even at 10 or 12 or even at 15%, as we saw with the pandemic because of the lockdowns, if you have 15% unemployment, that means 85% are still working and being paid. I don't see how anybody can say if 85% of your country is going business normal, going back to going to work, getting paid, I don't see how you can call that a deep depression. 
And, and so my point was we overreacted both the Central Bank of Canada and the fiscal policy, they started telling themselves and believing their own Kool-Aid that we were on the edge of the most uh, uh, horrible, uh, catastrophic uh, economic event in human history, which was nonsense. Yes, it was, it was challenging, no question. Yes, it was real. Yes, people were dying. But the idea that, you know, the economy was going to vanish and just everybody was going to stop working on a permanent basis or anything approximating that was just grotesque, you know, hyperbole. And so we ended up driving the interest rates to the lowest level they've been in 250 years, according to the Federal, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England. Never been this low before, quarter of 1%, not even during the Great Depression or World War I or World War II. And we pumped, literally, the U.S. pumped trillions out of the economy, and Canada pumped three-quarters of a trillion out of the economy. They put so much stimulus into the economy, we couldn't even spend it. So we ended up banking huge amounts. And so we overdid it. We overshot the market. And yes, we should have helped out. Of course we should have. But I think there's going to be many books written about how we over, we, we went too far, too fast, and we didn't, uh, there was just too much groupthink. And nobody said, wait a minute, people. We're talking 15% have lost their job. Yes, it's a serious problem. Yeah, we've got to look after them. But it's not 85%. And yet we poured stimulus out the door to many, many, many more than 15% of the population. Well, yeah, because, and, and I still remember, and it was, you know, for the most part, yeah, the federal government, but provincial governments did this too. And it was basically said, look, just ask for it and we'll give it to you. Uh, and isn't that really throwing grease onto the fire? I mean, you know, the, the, that's the problem. And, and you're simply saying, you know, as, as we found out now, as, as they're trying to tame this inflation, uh, we've got to stop people from spending money. Well, you don't do that by giving them more money. Exactly. Exactly. That's precisely the point. And just very quickly on this, so nobody says that, you know, Ian Lee wants to hurt low-income people or poor people. I've never said any such thing. It should have been targeted. The idea yep. that pro any university was going to lay off professors is preposterous. The idea that a public school or a high school was going to lay off hundreds or thousands of, high school, uh, pro of teachers is preposterous. The idea that the government of Canada was or is or will lay off large numbers of federal public servants or provincial or municipal is preposterous. The idea that the banks, the big banks, were going to lay off little thousands of their bank employees was absolute nonsense. We knew from the get-go it was going to fall and whack them really hard, disproportionately. People in bars, restaurants, in-person serving, barber shops, hair salons, um, uh, accommodation, travel, hotels. So that sector got whacked big time really bad. But they treated it as if everybody was being ruined by the COVID, and they spent like no tomorrow and pumped enormous, gigantic amounts of liquidity into the system. And I'm arguing that that made the situation much worse, the situation caused by the shutdown, the interruption of the supply chains caused by the lockdown. And then pumping that gargantuan amounts of stimulus, all that did was just put, poured gasoline, high-octane gasoline, onto the fire. Is there anybody, though, in public life... <laughs> Uh, whatever political party that, that would have the backbone to stand up and say, people, you're overreacting. Well, that's uh, or or do they simply politics. respond to you, say, okay, let's, let's, let's start cutting checks because I want to get reelected. Bill, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I look at each recession from in my lifetime, you know, starting in the 70s, then the 80s, then the 90s. And the rhetoric, I'm not talking the, the, the rhetoric of the recession, each successive recession, gets stronger and stronger by the politicians. You would think that it's, you know, it's the end of human time, human existence. You know, their rhetoric gets worse and worse. You know, you would think that there's millions of people starving to death in Canada. And, and what I'm saying is, yes, of course we should help those who need help. But this idea that vast numbers in the economy are devastated in a recession is just not true. It is not supported. I went and looked up the data for the Great Depression, which we know was the most ruinous of all times. Mm -hmm. And the unemployment rate hit 30, which is really huge, 30%. That meant 70% of people in the Great Depression, when everyone thinks nobody had a job, 70% continued to work. Now, the 30% that didn't were suffered enormously because they didn't have income support programs and unemployment insurance and so forth. I'm not advocating going to that. My point is, is that even in bad times, large numbers of people continue to work. Your grocery stores continue to function. Government continues to work. Schools continue to teach. Doctors and nurses continue to see patients. The economy does not come to a stop. 
And yet, they, this, this rhetoric and these assumptions driving both the Central Bank of Canada and the f- fiscal policy was that we are in the end times, and if we don't do and they kept saying, we're going to do extraordinary measures, and we will do whatever it takes, for, because they sent people home for two months. I mean, that's what I mean by the overreaction and the failure to target and they could have used the CRA, Canada Revenue Agency, for those who say we can't do it. Of course we can. We do it now. The HST rebate is targeted to low-income people using the income tax data on who is and who is not a low-income person. Same with the, uh, the carbon tax rebates. They are targeted using the tax data to people at low-income levels. So we've got the, the database. We've got the technology. We've got the tax records on 31 million Canadians, that's the number that filed tax returns last year, and we have this data, and they could have very easily targeted the support. And it just simply said to the minister, the cabinet, the prime minister could have said to the minister of National Revenue, of, of Canada Revenue Agency, tell your IT people to reverse the pipeline. Normally the taxes flow from us, the taxpayer, into the government. So you just tell them, reverse the flow, go and have your computers, program your computers. Anybody who made less than $50,000 in the preceding year, send them a check for $2,000 a month, credit their bank account, because they know their bank account, by the way, and just credit their bank account $2,000 a month until further notice. They could have done that. Now, there wouldn't have been the alphabet soup uh, programs, and Trudeau wouldn't have been able to hold a press conference every day saying, look at all the wonderful new programs I'm developing to save all of you. So the political optics, once you set up such a program, you don't get any real credit for it because it just operates automatically. But it could have been done at far less cost uh, to the Treasury and and at far less, um, much less likely to have exacerbated the inflation that ensued. Ian Lee from uh, Carleton University Sports School of Business, as always. Ian, thank you so much for this. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.